Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us who live with pain. This edition has been made possible by Pain Concern's supporters and friends. More information on fundraising efforts is available on our Just Giving page at painconcern.org.uk. I went to the home exhibition a few years ago and the man's selling the beds. He says, excuse me, sir, yes, he says, you've got ankle and spondylitis, would you like to buy a bed? Some GPs are fantastic and others don't know an awful lot because their training in dermatology is being cut and some of them have got about two weeks dermatology in six years. We did include the vets in our survey and the vets on average did have a higher pain education um, in terms of the number of hours compared to those being educated on the on the human healthcare side of things. And so, I know it's nothing, but you know what I mean, what I'm saying? He knew you'd just be looking at you. And you know what I mean, that was just a man selling beds. More about GP training and top tips on medical diagnosis from a bed salesman later. Now, ankylosing spondylitis, or AS, is a condition where some or all of the joints of the spine fuse together. It's one of the three most common forms of inflammatory arthritis, along with rheumatoid and psoriatic arthritis. They're separate conditions, but what each has in common is that the body's immune system is wrongly triggered to attack itself, causing pain, stiffness, damage to joints, and, if left untreated, possible disability. It affects around 200,000 people in the UK, and I met Ian MacDonald and Tom Downey, Secretary and Treasurer of the Edinburgh branch of the National Ankylosing Spondylitis Society. Tom was a teenager when the disease took hold. I was at boarding school, and we'd be playing football or something. Next game day, I just couldn't move out of bed. I just, just seized up, just couldn't move. And the nurse would come put some deep peat or something on, and I'd be fine a few hours later. And that went on through my school years that... But as I got into my 20s, I'd get the deep peat on, but it would still be so for three or four days. And I got, as I say, mid-20s, out of the action for weeks, just not being able to move and getting all the painkillers and things. And Although now you take some of the pain away, you just couldn't move. You were that stiff and things. And I never got diagnosed till about maybe 30-year-old. And by then I was away, stooped over. I couldn't see where I was going. I mean, it was just life was just hell. And you get depressed and things like that. And... I say I got my hips replaced when I was 35 and that made a big difference in, in constant physio and things. So now I can walk about any distance I need a walking stick, but I mean, life's all right. Working at the maths, it took 15 years to be diagnosed. Yes. Why was that? I say I was 15, 16, I was at school and you were seen as a, there's Tommy wanting to get off, you know, doing something, just wants to stay in bed and, and when I started working, well, I would go to work and I'd say 18, 19, you'd have to have a week off here and a week off there. And you just couldn't do things. And when you're that age, you don't want to go to the hospital or you don't want to go to the doctor. But eventually, when you do, you just get diagnosed with lots of different things. Oh, it's stiffness, it's juvenile arthritis, it's this. And I'd be in my late 20s when actually somebody says, I think it's this, ankle and spondylitis, and further investigation. If you were a 15-year-old now going through it, would it still take 15 years? Well, no, I've got a son who's 22, and when he was 13, he went through the same sort of thing. He was told he had some kind of juvenile arthritis, and he would have days of school and things like that, and he had a carry on, and he, unlike me, liked school, so it was quite a problem for him. But me already having it, went to a doctor, got diagnosed really quick and got offered physiotherapy, so 
within two years or something, he was getting offered physiotherapy, but I wasn't getting offered physiotherapy for 15 years. So has he had a successful diagnosis because of your knowledge or has it moved on? Well, I think about it both. At first, it was because of my knowledge. But the group we go in on Monday, you do hear and you, you see younger people coming now, not very often, but you see them. They seem to be getting diagnosed in their, their 20s and now. But it would take maybe me and Ian 10 years before we had it. So they do seem to be diagnosed a lot quicker. As an organisation, yes. the National Ankylosing Spondylitis Society, yes. what are you doing to help people get better treatment or more information? Yeah, Tom and myself and another colleague, Campbell Barr, have been going along to the Scottish Parliament for the last um, three or four years to various committees to try and get the publicity such that ultimately the, the, the information gets spread. The members of the society get three principal things. One is interface with fellow sufferers so that they get um, information on potential problems and, and perhaps how to cure them. The hydrotherapy sessions that we're lucky enough in Edinburgh and gymnasium sessions. So we get an exercise regime that will help at least keep the problem at bay, not necessarily cure it. Also, I think that if people know about the group and they go earlier, you can get the information. So somebody like me who got hip replacements in their 30s, and so I've got a son who's 22, with him knowing about ankles and spondylitis, because even something like, as simple as posture, you, you find out all that information. So you can avoid problems like having to get hip replacements and that, being you know, with the right physio, the right exercise, the right medication, where you can stay and work longer and things like that. Talking about your son having it as well, is it hereditary? Yes. Well, we've been told, I don't know the official statistics, but I'm just going by me. I've got three sisters, and uh, one of them's got ankle and spondylitis, and another one's got psoriasis. And there's a connection between psoriasis and ankle and spondylitis. And uh, my son's got ways, but to see him, you wouldn't know him and he looks fine, he looks fit. But at least with me knowing these things, you know I mean, I can go on there when I see him watching TV slouching. I can go on it, be set up and, and it can, as I say, it can avoid problems in your 50s and 60s. It's something that you can do now. I can confirm that it is hereditary. My, my father had it and I have uh, four sisters, one of whom has also got it. Uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed. I've got three kids and n that we have no sign of them actually having the problem yet. So um, as Tom says, uh, I'm two out of five got it. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that our kids. What advice would you have for somebody who's just been diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis? I would ask them to find a local NAS branch, and there are many throughout the country, and gain the benefits that, that I personally gain from it. The speaking to people who, who also have the problem, finding out what their problems are and perhaps helping you, getting the hydrotherapy sessions, the gym sessions. In my personal circumstance, Campbell Barr, who I've mentioned before, actually had physiotherapists organised to do measurements. There's a, a, a system called a bath system that actually measures your, your degree of stiffness and pain. There's a three-sheet set of statistics 
that, that people can measure how badly you are or, or otherwise. And it was thanks to this measurement regime that that then got referred to the rheumatologist. So I gained huge benefit personally through going along to the, the NAS organisation branch in Edinburgh. And Tom, on a day-to-day -day basis, what advice would you give somebody who's just been diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis? The key is keep moving. As Ian says, on the Monday night, we've got half an hour in the hydrotherapy. we trained physiotherapists. They know what they're doing. So that makes a difference. You get that hydrotherapy on the Monday, and then through in the gym, 45 minutes of light stretching. You go at your own pace. And once you get into that routine, you're doing that. I just feel that it just sets you up for the rest of the week. Even a jacuzzi, you know what I mean? I mean before you go in jacuzzi, you might be able to walk 25 steps without a seat. But once you've been in that jacuzzi, you can maybe walk 100 without a seat. Movement is a key. Tom Downey and Ian MacDonald. And you can find more information about ankylosing spondylitis, including details of the local branches of the National Ankylosing Spondylitis Society, from their website, which is nass.co.uk. That's nass.co.uk. Now, I mentioned the link between AS and psoriasis, or psoriatic arthritis. Janet Johnson helps run a small Scottish charity, SALVE. It stands for Psoriasis Scotland Arthritis Link Volunteers. I myself have psoriatic arthritis, which I've had since 1974. Diagnosed in 1974. Unfortunately, wasn't given good treatment back in the 70s and 80s. And there are now a lot of newer medications available. There's no cure. It's similar to rheumatoid arthritis in some ways, in as much as it's an inflammatory arthritis. But back in the 70s, and for 25 years after I was diagnosed, I wasn't given anything other than non-steroidals. And I should have been given second-line medications. So for 25 years, I had little flares and be left with quite a lot of damage which is not reversible other than with surgery. It's similar to rheumatoid in as much as you, if you can get in quickly with the diagnosis of this, you can treat it. You can't cure it, but you can treat it. Um, osteo is more difficult, actually, because it's wear and tear. But with the inflammatory types, if you can get in early, you can do more. So that's, that's basically what happened to me. But I do have a lot of pain and a lot of stiffness, and I can't walk very far now because I've got a lot of tendon damage, ankles, feet knees so my mobility is not good now lots of people might know about psoriasis but not know the link mm. between psoriasis and arthritis mm -hmm. psoriasis is, is an overgrowth of skin cells but there's also an inflammatory response and you don't have to have a lot of skin psoriasis which is red scaling patches to have problems with your joints this is part of the problem you might have a tiny little bit of skin psoriasis even just a tiny little bit and then develop sore fingers and toes is one of the most sort of classic ones. And unfortunately, GPs, like a lot of things, are not terribly well trained in spotting this. And the link is the inflammation. The inflammation, for some reason, in about one in five people with any skin psoriasis, not necessarily extensive. It's, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be covered in psoriasis to get this develop some problems with their joints and again it's very variable it might be one finger or you can be in a wheelchair so we're not trying to frighten anyone but it is a progressive thing so that you do need to treat it early some gps are fantastic 
and others don't know an awful lot because their training in dermatology is being cut and some of them have got about two weeks dermatology in six years, which is ridiculous. You know. So what should people look out for? Well, anyone with diagnosed psoriasis should be aware of this, not to frighten anyone, but if you get a swollen, especially a sort of swollen, puffy finger or toes or well, actually pain in your heel, the heel's another common place, back of your heel, tend, sort of set tendonitis, you should go and ask your doctor if you can get a referral to rheumatology and just see what's going on without terrifying anyone because it might be something else. Don't get terrified. You think, oh, my God, I've got a bit of psoriasis. Just, you know, keep an eye on it. Well, I'm glad I'm speaking to you because I have a little bit of psoriasis and I will keep an no, eye on terrified. it. No, you're terrified. Bear in mind, most people with skin psoriasis don't get problems. As I say, it's about one in five. Well, you've, you've been rummaging through your bag and I've got exactly what I need, which is a leaflet from This Is Psoriasis. I must read this, and, and thank you very much Thank indeed. you very much. Thank you. Janice Johnson from Salve, that's Psoriasis Scotland, Arthritis Link Volunteers. She and the previous speakers made reference to the adequacy of training for health professionals. Sue Clayton has been involved with pain concern for many years. Having had chronic pain for over 30 years, she was invited to give the patient perspective to health professionals at the 2011 annual scientific meeting of the British Pain Society. The model where someone has an acute illness, they're treated, they're discharged, is the sort of condition governments are interested in because they get a pathway, they get an outcome that they can measure. Chronic pain is a very different sort of condition. It's a long-term condition. People have probably got it for the rest of their lives, unfortunately. And I think it calls for a different sort of relationship with the clinicians that the patient is working with. In a way, a much more caring relationship. And I think one of the hardest things that patients like me are facing at the moment is in the way that medical services are changing, is that patients like me desperately need continuity of care with their medical advisors, and that is what is being lost in the health service at the moment. It doesn't make sense for me to have to go into my general practitioners and be prepared to see anybody of the five GPs who work there and have to repeat my story endlessly so that they understand where I'm coming from. They have doubts usually because of some of the drugs which I'm on whether this is suitable whereas my much lamented splendid GP who's who's recently retired because she'd known me for 20 years we've built up a relationship and she trusted me I trusted her to give me the best available care that she could manage but she also trusted me she knew that I didn't swing the lead she knew that I treated my, I took my drugs responsibly. She knew that I put effort into self-management. She knew that if I came to her and said, things have got much worse, I need help with a particularly difficult period, a bad flare-up, that that was genuine. I, I wasn't making it up. And she only knew that because she'd known me for a long time, over, you know, and known me over a period of time. And um, that's being lost. And that makes it very difficult for GPs at the cold face to work with people with long-term conditions like chronic pain because they're complex, 
pain is subjective, it's invisible. In a sense, they have to take an awful lot on trust of what their patients are saying. And how can they have that trust if they haven't built up a relationship and a knowledge of their patients? So at the moment, it's very, very difficult, I think. There needs to be a huge amount more training going into for um, clinicians dealing with chronic pain, both right from the undergraduate level, uh, right up to specialists, to understand that patients really struggle to cope with their lives and that a lot of them are really doing their best but that often life is extremely difficult and also pain fluctuates so much you may go along fine for six months and then wake up and for some unknown reason you have a terrible flare-up this is what happened to me three weeks ago nothing that I could put my hand on people say to me all the time oh do you know what happened and I say no um, and that makes it very difficult for the patient because they don't know what to avoid, they don't know how to manage better. If there was a trigger, I, I know that if I do something really stupid like dig the garden, of course I'll have back pain, but it can happen without any warning at all. And this makes it so difficult to explain to clinicians and for them to believe you because perhaps they've seen you out and about and you look perfectly all right. I mean, most people seeing me think I look perfectly normal. They don't know that sitting here today, I've got searing, burning pain from my waist to my toes. It just isn't visible. How do you judge somebody like that? It's a very, very difficult situation, um, both for, for doctors and for patients. And so I think there really has to be a model where patients have continuity of care in a relationship where they trust the doctors to actually believe what they're saying, accept it, and be prepared to perhaps put the barriers down a little bit, treat them as human beings who are capable adults who are trying to lead their lives as, as well as possible. Nobody wants to be in this situation. They've had it forced upon them. I would give anything not to be living like this, but I have to. It's very easy to judge people with chronic pain and judge them very unkindly. And that happens both in the general public and from clinicians and other health professionals at times. To take things on face value without actually talking to patients and finding out what's going on underneath. So Clayton, who spoke at the 2011 British Pain Society annual scientific meeting. In the following year's meeting, I spoke to Emma Briggs. She teaches at the Florence Nightingale School of Nursing and Midwifery at King's College London. She's also chair of the British Pain Society's Pain Education Special Interest Group. Their aim is to enhance the education of qualified health professionals and the patient education that they provide. So why should healthcare professionals who've been through years of training need this? Very good question. We recently conducted a survey that we published within the European Journal of Pain, which looked at the amount of education that was provided to our undergraduates and that looked at the education that was given to dentists, to nurses, doctors, midwives, physiotherapists and pharmacists and the number of hours of education that they receive is actually very low. Um, the average hours for a midwife was six hours in, in the whole of their curriculum. Nurses receive an average of ten hours doctors an average of, of 13 
Um, you know, the overall average was was twelve hours of education. And you're talking about the education, about pain issues? About pain, yes. And considering it's the reason that people seek health care um, and the amount of pain that people have experienced, that's a relatively low number in their curriculum. So it's less than 1% of their curriculum actually includes pain management. So we are trying to increase the number of hours devoted to pain management, but also how it's taught within our universities in the UK. You missed out one category in your list, and that's vets. Vets, yes. Now, we did include the vets in our survey, and we replicated this survey from Canada. And there are five vet schools within the UK, and unfortunately we only got two two respondents. But the vets, on average, did have a higher pain education um, in terms of the number of hours. Um, compared to those being educated on the on the human healthcare side of things, however, we can't. You know, it's only it was only two schools, but it is a surprising statistic that um, they have a higher number of, of hours in their curriculum. Um, but that comes down from actually from their regulators. They're the regulators of the veterinary undergraduate programs stipulate that pain should be in there, and then the quality assurance body that follows that up to make sure that education is being delivered well they say that pain should be in there so they kind of attack it from both sides whereas we as part of the survey we looked at whether healthcare regulators such as the nursing midwifery council the general Med- uh, medicine council whether they had made those stipulations and in some cases they had but in many cases they hadn't um, you know, so we really need to tackle things from from the regulators so that they encourage and stipulate that pain should be in the curriculum. It's hotly rumoured that there's an event this summer called the Olympics. Yes. You've managed to get it into one of your titles as well. We have indeed. Yes, we have. And in fact, our workshop today um, was called Sitius Autius Fortius and uh, launching our Olympic campaign for pain education. Um, and that was really about saying there's been some great developments about pain education for healthcare professionals, for patients um, and the public. And it's saying, but actually we need more and we need to be higher, faster and stronger on this. And we really need to push the agenda. Um, you know. And uh, one of my um, lines within the, the workshop was we haven't got a £2 billion development fund neither have we got a one-eyed mascot but there is much that we can do um, you know collectively to really move this agenda forward and we've been working with a number of people and from that workshop and some great ideas have come out and we, we will be sort of rolling those out to kind of improve pain education over the coming months. What sort of ideas? Well we have the interprofessional undergraduate curriculum document coming out later on in the year. So that's a working party that's being chaired by Dr Nick Alcock. And um, we are looking at producing a document which really helps people put pain education into their curriculum. Um, Because people can face a number of barriers. One um, fellow academic said to me, But my head of department has said, you know, I have got a number of penguins on my iceberg. Which one do you want me to push off in order to get a fit pain in the curriculum? Um, You know, and we want to change those sorts of attitudes to say, you know, we don't need to push off any penguins. We need to make sure that each penguin knows how to manage pain. You know, they've got the skills to do that. 
So this document will really is a real sort of practical how-to help the person champion pain management within their university. How do you integrate it? How do you try and get healthcare professionals learning and working together? Because the reality is in clinical practice, you know, nurses, pharmacists, doctors all need to work together to help the patient. Um, but at the moment, our survey has shown that they don't. They don't learn together. Um, they learn separately on their courses, and we need to change that. So this document is very much about saying how can you get healthcare professionals learning with, about, and, and from each other, so that when they qualify, you know, they are able to work really well interprofessionally and, and for the best interest of the patient, really. Tom, do you find that doctors find difficulty in diagnosing your condition? Well, years ago, yes, you know, but younger medical students and younger doctors, they can look at you and some of them just see you walk into the room and think ankles and spondylitis, you know. I went to the ideal home exhibition a few years ago and the man's selling the beds. He says, excuse me, sir, yes, he says, you've got ankle and spondylitis, would you like to buy a bed? You know what I mean? And so, I know it's nothing, but you know what I mean, what I'm saying? He knew just be looking at you. And you know what I mean? That was just a man selling beds. And uh, I think as well, younger students, they can see you. But that can be a danger as well, because somebody like Ian, who, although his neck's stiffer than that, he's not stooped over like me. So just because you're not stooped over you stop all ankle and spondylitis. But you were telling me earlier that you get involved in training doctors and even consultants. Well, yeah, it's just called the Exemplar Patient Programme and it's third and fourth year medical students. And we spend an hour, an hour and a half in the room with them talking to you and, and they want to know how you were first diagnosed and that and how you feel your, your GP in particular dealt with your problem and how you feel it could be improved when they, if they become a doctor in five year time and somebody walks in my sore back, how could it be improved? So, in short, you go along to the hospital as an exemplar patient. Yeah. A group of doctors, young and old, come in and they have to work out what's wrong with you. Well, yeah, as I say, you go down there, there's maybe four or five other people like me and uh, we get to put the five rooms. And this group of students, there'll be four or five groups of students and their job is to try and guess what's wrong with that person. And there'll be me with ankle and spondylitis, somebody with rheumatoid arthritis, somebody with other forms. And I have noticed over the years of doing this, they seem more informed than the doctors were 20 years ago, put it that way. So, of the consultants, the student doctors, and the double bed salesman, who gets the best training? <laughs> I, th I think the young doctors, you know, the fourth year students seem to be more with it now than ever before, in my opinion, anyway. The big thing about pain education is that all the information and the help is there, but we just don't know it's there. Yes, yeah. It's very true, actually. Um, Dorothy Helm, who is our link with the Patient Liaison Committee and is a co-opted member of the Education SIG, was reflecting on that point this morning when she was telling her journey from when she first started experiencing pain to her diagnosis. She was saying, you know, uh, I am a nurse by background, but I am a pain sufferer. And I did not know where to look, and there was not enough information out there for me. Couldn't find the information. I hadn't even found the information from the British Pain Society. So again, there's a lot to be done there in terms of awareness and helping people find the appropriate and well-informed information resources for them and support groups um, and, and specialist support groups as well. Emma Briggs, chair of the British Pain Society's Pain Education Special Interest Group. 
Now, don't forget that you can still download all the previous editions of Airing Pain from painconcern.org.uk and you can obtain CD copies from Pain Concern too. If you'd like to put a question to our panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter and, of course, pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website. Once again, painconcern.org.uk. Our usual words of caution are that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. And that goes for information and guidance you'll find from other sources, particularly the internet. Emma Briggs to close the programme. The internet is a fantastic resource, but it can also contain some very unreliable information. And in fact, Dorothy was reflecting on her experiences of using the internet and finding very negative information on the internet, which was not helpful for her as she was, you know, searching for some help for her facial pain condition. And it's very difficult to judge. I mean, the students that I work with, they have a a whole programme on how to use the internet effective to actually make those judgments as to who is it written by, when was it last updated, what was the purpose, was there any advertising around with it that might be influencing the writing on it. It's very, very hard to actually judge whether this is a kind of reliable source of information and actually whether the person who's written it is actually a real doctor, nurse, etc. You know, So it is a difficult judgment to make. And of course, you know, you type your key terms into some internet searches and you may get sites which actually have um, paid to be top of the agenda, you know, and so therefore they might have some certain biases as well.